Welcome to EJB Talks, Rutgers Blaustein School Experts in Policy, Planning, and Health, where we talk with our faculty and staff experts, as well as students, about how the fields of public policy, urban planning, public health, health administration, and public and urban informatics affect your lives. Welcome to EJB Talks. I'm Stuart Shapiro, the Associate Dean of the Faculty at the Blaustein School. And the purpose of this podcast is to highlight the work my colleagues and our alumni in the field of policy, planning, and health are doing to make the world, the country, and New Jersey a better place. Today we have Ron Quincy, a professor of practice who teaches courses uh, on poverty and inequality, health disparities, community organizing, and a wide range of other things at the Blaustein School. Welcome to the podcast, Ron. Well, thank you very much, Stuart. I'm very delighted to be here. So as my intro indicated, you teach a lot of courses over a fairly wide range of subject materials for us. Um, And you've also done a, a great deal of stuff over your career as I was looking through your CV there. Um, Is there a theme that weaves its way through uh, your experience in your courses? Well, uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, First of all, uh, we have phenomenal students at Rutgers University, uh, both at the graduate and undergraduate level. And so um, I try to uh, keep up with the, uh, the speed and the pace of the students and the scope of interest that they have. So we try to uh, operationalize the uh, the course syllabi uh, so that they are uh, both informative but also interesting. So we try to use uh, case examples um, that uh, that help to uh, magnify uh, the textbooks. Um, and um, so, with as an example, with my global uh, poverty class, I also teach global health, right? And the alignment between poverty and uh, and health. Um, are, uh, are well known uh, in, in, in the fields of public health and medicine. Um, I also um, uh, teach um, um, uh, managing um, people and organizations, and I, and I teach community organizing. Um, and so, uh, you know, I find that these two courses, of course, have lots of uh, common principles uh, associated with them. Um, and, uh, and, and sometimes students, of course, take both of those uh, graduate courses. Um, but uh, excitingly, um, I also teach um, uh, in the uh, School of Arts and Sciences honors uh, uh, seminars uh, for um, uh, students at all uh, stages in their uh, academic careers, from first year to seniors. Uh, for the uh, Honors College and SAS Honors students. And and that's a very uh, uh, terrific course as well that helps to develop their leadership skills. Um, and uh, so, so as a result, uh, uh, I'm finding synergy between and among um, many of the courses that I teach. Gotcha. Um, now, I know to sort of switch topics on you here, I know recently you've been working on diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Blaustein yeah. School. And I don't yeah. want to talk about the Blaustein School in particular because I know the work is ongoing, but um, I was wondering if you could talk for a few minutes about the challenges around DEI issues for higher education generally. Yeah. So um, higher education um, as a a uh, part of the uh, general society 
um, is at a crossroads uh, with the issues of diversity and equity and inclusion and belonging. Um, we uh, seem to uh, are at a point where we are uh, rethinking um, uh, the, the means and the methods of creating uh, a more diverse uh, environment, uh, as well as uh, spending uh, great deals of time and effort thinking about how we um, uh, make uh, our institutions uh, more welcoming uh, to uh, diverse populations. Um, and you can't have one without the other. Um, uh, you can't aggressively uh, recruit um, uh, faculty of color and students of color and then not work equally hard to retain them. Um, and retention is in large measure due to belonging um, and caring and a sense of equity um, uh, within um, uh, the higher education experience, whether you're a student, a staff member, or a faculty member, or a dean, or a president. Um, if you talk to presidents of universities, they will tell you the same thing uh, in terms of the, uh, you know, those who are women or, or people of color, um, um, how different it is uh, for them as opposed to their, uh, their colleagues, and how challenging it is. Uh, because on the one hand, um, there's, this, uh, there's this need to uh, uh, present a, a progressive uh, uh, package of, uh, of programming and, uh, and, and, a, and a, a progressive plan of action. Um, but on the other hand, um, there's the reality that higher education institutions do not change easily. Um, and, um, and, uh, uh, and as a consequence, the challenge is, is, is a long-term um, uh, it, it has been a long-term um, and consistently challenging uh, effort to diversify and bring equity within our institution. So Rutgers, our president Holloway, um, uh, launched um, his new uh, tenure as our president just prior to the pandemic, um, he launched his uh, initiative around the theme of creating a beloved community at Rutgers. And, and a beloved community uh, is an aspirational philosophical framework. Um, it is not um, a concept that you likely achieve um, it's a it's a concept that if you work hard and you uh, make amazing progress, that that progress in and of itself uh, creates a uh, an institutional uh, framework that allows you to have equity and to have diversity, um, because it is so aspirational. Um, it is hard to articulate it to a broader uh, base of students and faculty and staff and alumni and donors. Um, and so he's doing a great job uh, of trying to do that. But uh, I believe that it's each individual's responsibility among the 100,000 of us uh, students, faculty, staff um, at Rutgers. Um, uh, it is on each of our uh, parts responsibility to uh, seek that beloved community, get as close to it as we possibly can. Uh, in the meantime, uh, creating a, a, a more um, uh, a diverse and, um, and, and a more engaging um, university community. 
Gotcha. I mean, that, that's, of course, you know, I, and uh, I agree with everything there, but it is a big ask, right? We've got 100,000 people here and to sort of inculcate that mindset into a such a wide and, yes, diverse group of people is no easy task. What are the sort of the steps we need to take to, to try and, and get there? Well, I, I think uh, number one is a consciousness raising phase. Um, um, and, and any social change movement, um, raising the consciousness of not only those who feel um, uh, disaffected, uh, but those who also feel um, that they, uh, while they have privilege, uh, that that privilege might be infringed upon um, if you uh, actually do <laughs> achieve a beloved community. Uh, and so consciousness raising, I think, is the number one thing, is the first thing that you have to do. Uh, secondly is accountability, um, and accountability at every level. We have this great debate uh, on campuses about free speech and the ability for us to be able to have a dialogue, even contentious dialogue, uh, around a range of subjects. Um, and part of a beloved community uh, suggests that we need to have those uh, free and open debates, uh, sometimes, no matter how painful they may be, because if we don't raise the consciousness levels, um, we cannot operationalize uh, the beloved community um, in a diverse environment. So, um, so number one is the consciousness raising. The second thing is, as we try to operationalize that, putting in policies and practices um, that are perceived and in reality are equitable. Um, and um, so once again, you know, being able to uh, have a phys- philosophical conversation about a beloved community, but not have the, the policies and practices that, um, that relate to uh, creating an equitable environment um, will negate your pathway toward a beloved community. Uh, so consciousness raising and uh, and a focus on on equity, and then thirdly is belonging and uh, making sure that we are culturally competent in uh, in our work, in our learning as students, uh, in our in our teaching as faculty, and in our work as uh, as administrative staff. Um, we have to uh, be very culturally competent, um, and and a lot of this is going to require uh, training, specialized training, uh, group training, um, um, self-guided training, um, so that we, as an example, know how to, what the best practices are as relates to uh, identifying with and working with uh, students and faculty and staff who have physical or mental challenges or disabilities. Um, that takes uh, 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 that takes more than compassion. Uh, it takes knowledge and being competent in how we engage in those. Uh, the same thing on the issues of gender. Um, you know, we've come a very long way in higher education and here at Rutgers uh, to creating uh, greater opportunities for uh, women faculty um, at the uh, tenured track and tenured levels. Um, I believe the last data I saw on Rutgers, women junior faculty um, at the assistant professor level 
um, as an example, that women have reached parity. There's still a differentiations within certain departments, uh, certain STEM departments, uh, as an example. But if you add up across uh, the university, women have reached parity, at least in terms of uh, assistant professor level. But as you move up the ranks to associate and full professor um, and distinguished professor ranks, um, then, um, then males uh, far out uh, number um, are, are, are women faculty. So, um, so in the pipeline, um, there is the opportunity for uh, greater success in the future uh, with the uh, younger um, uh, faculty, women faculty, but, but currently um, we still have those gaps at the more senior levels. So, um, so having an, an operational strategy that is um, long-term in, 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 in uh, vision, um, but is measured um, on an annualized basis and where accountability structures are put in place uh, for everyone along the, uh, the continuum of, uh, of rec recruiting, retaining, and promoting um, of, of faculty, whether they're women or faculty of color, and of course, uh, providing greater access to students of color um, and particularly from historically disadvantaged backgrounds. So I want to, you know, I want to sort of connect what we're seeing in higher ed with with the country. I mean, it's uh, if you read, if you spend as much time on social media as I do, which is far too much, frankly, um, you know, higher ed has the uh, has the reputation of being woke or being, you know, especially obsessed with these issues that we're talking about. And yet these challenges still very much exist. I mean, you and I who live through it every day know that. Um, and if that's going on for higher education, what does it say about where we are as a country as a whole in dealing with these kinds of issues? Uh, yeah, great question, uh, Stuart. And I think this, uh, that while we have um, a history in higher education of being more avant-garde on, on uh, social and economic issues, um, in, in practice and reality, um, our, our actual uh, contributions to the greater society um, has not measured up to, to the image uh, of the ivory tower uh, being more liberal and progressive. Um, it is. Uh, more liberal and progressive, um, but uh, uh, but that's more in uh, in philosophy and theory than it is in practice. Um, and so um, you'll find in um, in a lot of blue collar uh, 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 jobs um, that their representation, their diversity is better than um, let's say faculty positions. Um, and you say, well, you know, there's an educational gap there, right? And then what I'm saying is that um, um, whether you're looking at blue collar jobs, government uh, positions that are professional jobs, um, whether you're looking at um, any, um, uh, even in the, in the corporate world, uh, the private sector world, um, the diversity is oftentimes um, richer when, where there are accountability structures for meeting goals than what we have in higher education. Um, so it is true, um, and I accept the premise that we are um, on, on large measure philosophically more progressive, um, but with regard to on the 
actual results of creating more diversity um, and more opportunities for growth and development. Um, we have seen uh, more success outside of higher education than we have within higher education. And that's a problem um, uh, throughout um, uh, the country. It's, it's not um, limited to one region of the country. We're getting better at it, um, but we still have great challenges there. So the year we've been doing this podcast, we started right as the pandemic hit in part as a response to it. Um, you know, it, 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 it's trite, but still true to say it's been a year unlike any other um, in, in, in the country. And certainly um, anything in a little too young to remember the, the mid to late 1960s. But certainly nothing in my lifetime has, has approached what we've seen in the past uh, past year. Um, what, you know, what about the past year as we've gone through COVID, as we've gone through uh, George Floyd and the protests, as we've gone through a political climate um, that has been insane, what has it shown to you about where we are on diversity, uh, inclusion, race relations in the country as a whole? Well, uh, Stuart, um, our Constitution proposes that we have great expectations as citizens. Our Constitution proposes that um, while it, um, in its beginning, um, uh, was uh, an exclusive uh, constitution, a very limiting constitution, excluding women, um, excluding uh, people of color, um, such as the slave population um, and the native uh, tribal populations, the indigenous populations, and and so many others who were excluded. Excluded to the extent that we weren't in our first uh, census, um, we weren't even counting these people, um, let alone um, uh, giving them constitutional uh, protections. And what troubles me is that while we have made uh, tremendous strides, and you mentioned the 1960s, um, I lived through um, the 1960s, the rebellions, um, um, the civil disobediences, the, the civil disorders that that touched hundreds of cities across our country, including um, um, New Brunswick, uh, the, the the seat of um, of the Rutgers University, uh, New Brunswick campus, um, and um, Newark and Camden, um, and in my home city of Detroit. Um, the explosion um, in most of these cities was fundamentally triggered by um, a sense of inequity and despair and ignited by a police shooting. Um, virtually every single one where there was a um, crowd disruptions and, and, and civil um, uh, disorders, uh, they were triggered by a police shooting. And um, I recall um, President Johnson's reaction um, to the civil disobediences in Newark and in Detroit in 1967. Um, um, Newark's occurred uh, one month before Detroit's. And um, the response was a military one. The response was sending in Detroit, as an example, 5,000 federal troops who 
um, were Vietnam uh, era war uh, active duty uh, troops. I remember the tanks rolling down the streets, um, uh, shaking the, the, the photographs um, on my parents' wall, one of Martin Luther King Jr., one of uh, President Kennedy, um, and, um, um, and one of Jesus on the wall. Um, the tanks rattling the walls and shaking off these photographs. I, I remember those days. And I remember saying to myself as a teenager in high school, chairing the um, uh, the school's committee on, on equal rights. And, um, and I thought to myself, this can't be the America that I was born into. Um, President Johnson agreed. <laughs> um, and he appointed, uh, as you know, what is called the Kerner Commission, which was more uh, legally the President's Commission um, on uh, uh, civil disorders. And, and he asked that commission, uh, he charged it with three uh, questions. One, what happened? Two, uh, why did it happen? And three, what can we do to make it, uh, make sure it doesn't happen again? Those three questions. And um, I was doing a forum on the 50th anniversary. I was a, a speaker and panelist at, during the 50th anniversary of the current commission report. Um, in Detroit, and the and the last surviving uh, member of the President's Commission um, uh, and I were uh, speaking on the panel, um, and and he made it clear to us all that as a young um, uh, U.S. Senator from Oklahoma, what he envisioned the answers to the President's questions were going to be before the Commission started his work. But to the surprise of the president and many members of his commission, the results were quite different. And the results, the conclusions were that we were moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. Um, and further, that the so-called ghettos um, um, the urban centers um, where the vast majority of uh, people of color were, were concentrated in. Um, the, the commission's uh, conclusion was that the, um, the ghettos were created by white society and institutional racism. They were maintained by them um, and that it was society's responsibility to correct uh, the inequities uh, that had created this rise of despair uh, by communities across the country. So very briefly, if you look at the 12 um, indices that the, uh, that the commission uh, reported on that were the basis for grievances of the communities, at the bottom of those 12 was welfare reform, which was the surprise of the president and his cabinet. But at the top was police misconduct. 
and police abuse. Um, and so uh, over five and a half decades ago, <laughs> when the President's Commission in its research found that police misconduct was the uh, most, most recognized grievance of black and brown communities in this country, here we are again with George Floyd um, and Congress debating the George Floyd police, uh, the new legislation to create um, better policing um, and more equitable policing. It's, it's astonishing. Further, Stuart, it doesn't have to be that way. We don't train our police um, in the same ways of using deadly force as we train our military personnel. Um, if you look at the U.S. Army's um, military um, law and use of deadly force, um, the training that's required for our military personnel in the use of deadly force, whether it's in a whether it's in the um, uh, the war theater uh, involving civilians or outside of a war theater, the uh, the criteria are more stringent than they are for our local police um, domestically here in the United States. Um, the average is 58 hours of training for police um, in using guns and only eight hours of police training in de-escalating um, a situation. Um, the, the, in the military, um, the training on the use of weapons is ongoing. It's rigid, um, it's evaluated, um, and there is accountability for your inability or your unwillingness to use those weapons in a safe way and to only use them and discharge them when they are absolutely necessary. They teach de-escalation even when they are in the war theater. Um, so we need to do more and the George Floyd Act will help us with our police forces to use more. We need to diversify our police forces even better than we are uh, diverse now. A generation ago, there were residency rules uh, for police and fire protectors and um, public school uh, educators. We don't have those uh, for the most part in our country anymore. So they're viewed as an occupied force. And when you have an occupied force in any kind of human environment um, whose cultural competency is inconsistent with the people that you are overseeing police, uh, particularly in a policing environment, um, you're going to have these problems um, and, um, and they're going to be systemic and that's what we've been seeing. So it's disheartening. Uh, Stuart, many years ago in another state, state of Michigan, I was on the uh, Governor's uh, Criminal Justice Commission and I was appointed the chair of the subcommittee on police use of deadly force. <laughs> and that was back in the 80s, the early 80s. And, um, and, um, and our report mirrors the same reports that are coming out right now. Um, uh, more accountability, more training, more legal accountability for um, uh, police use of, of deadly force uh, when that deadly force um, was not warranted. It's got to feel like deja vu. Yes, it feels like deja vu all over again. Yeah. 
Um, so I urge our listeners, and Ron, if you'd like to as well, we did an early segment in the history of the podcast last year with Sandy Jaffe, who um, was on the Lilly Commission, which was the New Jersey version of the Kerner Commission um, back in the late 60s. And his his history and, and, uh, and, and talking about that and also his sense of deja vu, I think, was also quite, uh, quite acute um, in, in having lived, lived through that. Um, Ron, any, any sort of parting words before we wrap up here that you'd, you'd like to give our audience? Well, um, I could say um, keep hope alive. Um, uh, I, I can say um, let's seek a new frontier. I can say let's have a great society. I can echo presidents of the past um, who have uh, wanted better for America and Americans, um, who have wanted us to be uh, more inclusive to at least the the, the theme of our preamble to our constitution. Um, and so those are my parting words that uh, we are uh, one nation um, and, um, and together we can, um, we can uh, meet these challenges um, of the 21st century. Well, that's, that's a message I, I, I do like to end on. Ron, thank you so much for a, a really great uh, conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stuart. Um, also, a big thanks to uh, Amy Cobb and Karen Olson for the work they do to get this out every week. Um, we'll be back next week with another talk from another expert at the Blaustein School. Until then, stay safe.